You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. Good. Good. How are you? Good. Good. When I listened to the podcast with Bram, and uh, you were talking about how you were, I guess, mechanized infantry uh, when you first came out oh, of West Point. Yeah. My wife was Cav, and I was Cav when I, uh, I switched from infantry to the brigade reconnaissance troop halfway through our trip, so... And then we got reflagged as a cab, you know, when we got back. So yeah, yeah, cab's good stuff. So you know, back in the day when I was cab, they didn't have the whole thing about earning your spurs and stetson and all that kind of stuff, and it didn't really start coming about as probably more of a tradition until like the '90s. Prior to that, you just sure. wore them. You know, there was no tradition of having right. to earn them. You know, if you served in the unit, you were entitled to them, kind of thing. That, yeah. We were we were sort of when we were reflagged we came back and it was like we were already sort of like in the unit and it was like way late so we ended up doing the whole thing but yeah it was it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> so what group was it that you served in in special forces? I was in third group. Third group. Okay. So yeah. um, one of the podcast hosts on the podcast is Rudy Lindsay. I don't know if you've ever heard okay. of him. If it's the Rudy Lindsay that I think it is. He was actually my cadre when I was a cadet at West Point. Yeah, you may remember that. Uh, he was—he's a warrant officer, or was a warrant yeah, officer. Yeah, but but what they did is they had teams came down. We can ask him. He may—he may, he may yeah. remember. But the teams came down for our summer training. Yeah, and they got—it was like a—it was like a tasking for them. So it was a, there was an SF team there. I was like a freshman, you know. I was a plebe. I didn't know anything. There's SF guys there, and. What, what what you need to ask him is if Rudy remembers making cadets do star jumps for Copenhagen because if <laughs> if that's if that's it then uh, it's he's the guy. Uh, so. You know uh, I do believe he dips, so that makes uh, yeah. perfect sense. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's right now working a lot as a uh, contractor, government contractor, okay. doing all kinds of stuff, and I think he still gets involved sure. in training a lot of you know, SF units and stuff prior to deployment, all yeah. kinds of crazy stuff that they get involved yeah, in. Yeah. So he's uh, hit or miss as far as joining the show here lately. And he also moved out to Colorado uh, where he's, okay. uh, he's gone really off the radar and uh, off the yeah. grid kind of speak. So you can do that in Colorado. Oh, no <laughs> doubt. Yeah. So we used yeah. to have guys assigned up to, to the Academy. Um, I forget exactly. One of them had to be a diver. I think one of them had to be a scuba guy. Yeah, the guys, the guys that trained us at the time were. They, it was just a team that got. I mean, I didn't know it when I was a cadet. Just when I found out when I got into the group, finally, it was just. It was just a random summer tasking that they got put on to do the, at the our just our beast barracks training, our our infantry training and stuff. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure Rudy was the guy that that put us through hell and. But you could earn Copenhagen, so that was I, I remember him for that for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> when you're when you have no Copenhagen, you remember those people that are willing to give it to you, even I if they're uh, So now seems like I remember something like that from selection, or or maybe it might have been after. Maybe when I was in the Q course and there were guys in selection, and they were trying to barter with us um, from other sides of the fence and uh, and trade oh, yeah. for for what Copenhagen we had. Yeah. Uh, you'll do you'll do just about anything for Copenhagen at, at those moments. So when was it that you came in? Because you spent about ten years in total, right? Yeah. So I, I graduated in two thousand one, uh, and then came over here in two thousand late two thousand ten. So I was like kind of right at the ten year mark. Uh, 
and then, and then been over here for seven years. So, so you were a second lieutenant then about the time that 9-11 happened. I was, yeah, we had graduated. Uh, I was in OBC in at Fort Benning. We were in the field when it happened. Yeah, so we I didn't actually see the towers come down uh, for like two weeks. We were in the field for the guys that, that were in our class that had family in D.C. or, you know, in, in New York, where they brought them out got to make phone calls and stuff, but, uh, we did, we just stayed in the field. I remember listening to on the rate on our actual, like our army radios, we dialed into the, and listened to the, like the FM stations, just wow. getting reports on it. Nobody, you know, at the time it was like, you know, the initial reports, nobody knew what was going on. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, but it was weird. It was weird because if you remember, they stopped showing the towers going down, like right. they kind of just stopped doing it, I think, because it was such a event. Right. And, uh, so then I didn't I didn't see it until we got home a few weeks later. It was weird. It was really weird. Yeah, no doubt. And I had just my retirement date actually was August first. So I knew okay. a bunch of guys that were up at the Pentagon and the first thing I was doing was trying to get a hold of them and as you would imagine, yeah. all lines were down. Communication was pretty much limited because they were trying to keep it yeah. to the, you know, first responders that were in the area and it was a, yeah. a pretty wild period of time, for sure. And the fact yeah. that you were actually at Fort Benning going through OBC. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's not obviously nothing like that had ever happened. And, and then all of a sudden, you're you're already in the Army, you know, like you want to be in the Army. And then it was like, okay, this is about, you know, you don't realize it. And then you, come, you, you kind of finish up and you're like, whoa, this is going to be a it's, lot different yeah. than, than we thought. It just got real. So, yeah, for sure. It got very, it got very real. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what, was, <laughs> what was your first unit after that? Then after OBC, uh, I went to Fourth ID. So okay. I mean, I have a, I have a funny story about going infantry. Uh, yeah, I was a, I was originally uh, air defense. That was sort of the. Oh. I was I played hockey, and then it was you know guys on the hockey team at the time. The culture. I'll just say wasn't probably pro army. Uh, it was more of like let's get done with the army so we can move on. Um, and uh, and quite a few guys in, in you know older than me on the team had gone air defense and artillery. But there was five of us on the team that graduated. We all we all decided to go air defense. You pick you, know, you pick your your uh, branch sort of halfway through the year or whatever. And then I, it wasn't immediate, but it was it seemed like it was immediate. I was like, damn it. That this is not what I. This is not what I want to do. <laughs> this is not going to be the the army experience that I'm after. Um, and just sort of uh, tried to, to to change it officially. And I was you know way late with with there was there was a process, but I missed the window and everything else. I actually graduated day I graduated my the OR that helped us on our hockey team uh, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Don Engen. He was an infantry and. I was, I already had a couple beers, you know, I was like happy I graduated and I was just standing by, he's grilling burgers. I, I can remember it like it's yesterday and just saying, I'm not happy. Like, this is not going to be what I want. <laughs> and, uh, he said, I'm standing there in shorts and flip flops. He's like, you know what? He's like, he basically said, fuck it, go put on your, go put on some clothes and some, some shoes and go knock on the superintendent's door. Cause that's who we sent the letter through and everything else. He's like, you got, what do you got to lose? Right. Uh, so I did. So I got, I got dressed and he dropped me off over there. I knock on the door, no, totally unannounced, you know, just knock on the door. His wife answered. And fortunately his wife 
and him came to quite a few hockey games. So she, she knew me. I mean, she knew who, my face at least. And I just said, you know, is, is, is your husband home? Is the general home? I don't know what I said, but uh, <laughs> she, she was very nice. Yes. And then he came, you know, out of the kitchen or something and said, you know, hi, Lieutenant Finnegan. How's it going? And uh, I go, it's going great. I graduated, but I'd like to talk to you about that letter I sent you a while ago. Um, and anyway, he, he was very nice and he said, well, let's, let's see what we can do. Uh, I actually went to Jamaica the next day for our sort of our, uh, <laughs> celebration. Yeah. Celebration. Um, he said to give him a call. Uh, when I got back, I, I wait, I didn't wait. I waited like three days into our Jamaica trip, called his secretary. He actually got on the phone and was like, how's Jamaica? And he said, it's going great. <laughs> it's going, it's going great, sir. And then he gave me the. Yeah, we got the we got the ball rolling here or something, and then I got back, flew back in, stayed at Colonel Engen's house for a night, and uh, actually got a phone call from somebody in at West Point at the time, a major or something, and he said you you got infantry, and I was like, holy oh, shit! Oh man, yeah, that had to be and great. Then, well, then it was hilarious because he's like, well, where do you want to post? And like in my head, I'm like, did I just like jump the whole system? Because my grades weren't great, so I was not going to get the best posting anyway. And I'm like, Hawaii, you know, like all just, yeah. all the best, all the best places, thinking I'm going to get it. And uh, go back to Minnesota, just hanging out, you know, got got a month or whatever in between. And uh, he calls me back and he's like, you're going to Fort Hood, <laughs> the fourth ID. Of course. I was like, I'll t- I'll take it, I'll take it. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, if you look it up, like in the in the yearbook and stuff, it's it looks like I went air defense, but I was fortunate fortunate enough to go infantry. Oh, that's a great story, and it really goes to show that, especially as far as what it is that you select that you'd like to go to, is usually the place that they are less likely to send you. Uh, it's yeah, always right. it's always been the case. So guys would start figuring that out, and they'd put on Korea and stuff like that. Oh no, no, we're gonna we're not gonna send you where you want to go. We're gonna send you where we want you to go. So, yeah, that's right. That's right. Beggars can't be choosers in my uh, situation. So I was just pumped, pumped yeah. that I got in. So you went, uh, when did you end up going to the Q course? How long did you end up staying in mechanized infantry before you end up going to Q? Uh, uh, so I just, I mean, I, whatever, I was like a first lieutenant. So I was in, like I told you, I graduated in 2001 and then um, did the, you know, all the basic officer course, mechanized infantry airborne school ranger school and then went to the unit 9-11 had already you know it just happened as we were saying earlier and then it was uh so we deployed in 03 we were supposed to be you know coming from the north and everything through turkey at the time with third id coming from the south and then they turned our boats around and we ended up coming up through kuwait so we got sort of we didn't get the initial uh push we came in afterwards and then pushed all the way up north so it was 03, what I, that was that deployment was 13 months, so 04 came back, went to selection, and then it was, I guess I was in the Q course 05-ish, about. Okay. Mike, would, they, would you have been there during that time frame, or were you already no, in town? No, I was, already, I was already back. I left in 2003. Okay. So I was just curious if Mike would have been one of the guys that was making you do star jumps for Copenhagen as well. I would have made him do star jumps, but not for Copenhagen. Just for, not for Copenhagen. My own <laughs> entertainment. <laughs> actually, yeah. actually, my preferred event was Buddy Carey's all night long, red light, green light, to uh, chem lights up and down sand fire break hills out in uh, Camp McCall. So. Yeah, that sounds familiar. 
got to entertain yourself when you're doing the same thing for three years in a row at Camp McCall. So we had some, I understand. We, we I had understand. quite a few, quite a few things that we could entertain ourselves with. Yep. So how was it that you yep. ended up meeting Bram Connolly then? Of course, you know, we both know Bram is a mutual friend and Bram had you on recently onto his new adventure that he's starting in Australia called Warrior U and uh, had you on a podcast there. But where was it that you two linked up? Yeah, so after uh, I decided to get out um, of, the, of the military, at the time, my actually previous sergeant major, Keith Nan, uh, you, you might know him, Mike, was, was working over Keith was working over here, um, and I was just lucky enough to stay in touch with him. And they were they were hiring people in the UAE on this contract, and wasn't really anything I endeavored to do. It was you know I I kind of thought I'd get out and just find a job in the U.S. or whatever. But I had three kids at the time, and my wife and I were sort of just because she was also in the military. She we were both sort of ready to get out, and we said, "What the hell? Let's 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 try to go." on an adventure came over here and um bram i ended up actually ended up hiring bram myself uh i don't know a couple years into being over here and then we worked together for i don't know about four years and then bram like you said bram uh now he's written two books and he's got the warrior you thing going so yeah he just asked me to do his podcast a couple weeks ago so now i'm a podcast veteran i guess so uh you knew him well before he was the uh the author and the whole bit, you know, he's a big celebrity now. Yeah, he's, you can't go anywhere in Australia with Bram now, you get paparazzi. <laughs> yeah. No, I was, yeah, Bram and I were, we just worked together over here doing the training for the UAE military and, uh, you know, became good friends through that and then he's on to bigger and better things. I think one of the topics that you guys talked about that really resonated with me and that I wanted to kind of talk about further because expand upon it. And of course, the Warrior U program that Bram's leading over there really is about trying to mentor youth that's going to consider going into the, the National Defense Force over there for Australia. But you guys touched on a topic about leadership and especially emotional intelligence. And I just wanted to share that back in the day when I went through PNOC, which then became PLDC, and I think it's now called the Warrior Leadership uh, Warrior Leader Course, um, mm-hmm. back in those days, there really was only two styles of leadership that they really talked about, and that was author- authoritarian and democratic. And, and that was sure. the leadership styles that they really focused the most on. And, of course, I remember even going to job interviews uh, you know, after getting out of the military, and they'd ask, what kind of leader are you? Uh, you know, are you authoritarian? Are you democratic? And of course, the right answer was, well, I apply both depending upon the situation, you know, and all that kind of good stuff. But now, you know, somewhere around the 1990s and early 2000s, emotional intelligence leadership really started coming into play. Now, we knew it as a seasoned leader in the military. As you start going up in rank, if you don't have emotional intelligence as part of your, your you know, understanding of leadership, then you're not going to become that great leader. Typically, because you have to understand yeah. how to build those teams together, how to, you know, different people react to different situations and the emotional wherewithal. But I, I just found it interesting that somebody coined the term. And now in order to be a great leader, you have to have that emotional intelligence, which tends to be five different things. They uh, they talked about uh, self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy for others and social skills. Again, those are one of those things you end up learning much later on anyway. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't remember being taught 
or hearing that term, you know, in any military training that I had. Um, I think you hear you heard like interpersonal skills maybe as part of like right. the be no do like the be no do lectures, which I think are are you know fairly progressive lectures in themselves, just in the fact that you're allowing leaders to kind of understand people and themselves. But I think from the emotional intelligence side, it's just like you said, like I, I don't, I didn't learn that or really, maybe I'm not even good at it now. Maybe I'm giving myself too much credit, but like I think as you get older and you, you start to have to work with many different people and you can get away with being an authoritative, you know, leader in the military. Cause it's nobody, people expect that. Right. But like you said, I don't think you're going to take your leadership to the next level uh, until you're able to kind of apply um, some of the stuff that emotional intelligence highlights in terms of looking at the situation, you know, understanding the different dynamics of the different personalities. I mean, especially on an, like on an SF team where I could, for me as like a young captain coming onto that team, um, you know, I, I, you want to, you want to be able to do everything, right? You want to, you, you think you want to be able to be in charge of everything, but in, the reality is you got to rely on all of those guys, you got to rely on your team sergeant who's got, you know, more experience in his pinky than you do in your, in your whole limited army career. But, um, you know, in reading that situation, see, understanding that those guys are going to be there for you and you got to be there for them and you can't, every situation is not the same. So I, I don't know, like I'm, this is hindsight speaking now, to be honest, like yeah. I didn't even know it as, as a captain, but, um, it is something that I, I do try to apply daily in my life now. So. Well, you had a great story too about where you've kind of started learning about your emotional intelligence side. Yeah. Bram, Bram loves that story. I think that was one of the stories we talked in. We, we had a 200 kilometer commute to work uh, out here. I still do that one. So we talked about all sorts of stuff, but yeah, one of the, one of the stories I shared was as a, as a young Lieutenant at the end of our uh, 13 month uh, trip to, to, to Iraq was, we had I had switched over from a mechanized platoon leader to a brigade reconnaissance platoon leader. You know, you're in soft skin Humvees. It's 2004. There's IEDs everywhere. It's the end of our trip, and we got tasked with basically bringing the uh, division headquarters and some of the brigade staff down from Tikrit all the way to Kuwait. So what that equates to is about 18 hours on the road, uh, the last two weeks of your deployment. Not the greatest uh, assignment. So... We, you had to get up to Tikrit early, and you had to get out of Tikrit as soon as possible, or else you'd hit Baghdad, and it'd be dark, and it was just a mess. And it, it wasn't it wasn't as though you were just bringing Humvees or something. You were bringing hats and you know eighteen wheelers and stuff full of equipment. Uh, and then on top of that, the people that we were um, escorting back uh, all have very important jobs. Not not downplaying that, but they just hadn't been off their base, right? So they got to Iraq a year ago and then were staff and had stayed on their base the whole time. So they were legitimately nervous. Uh, and some of them were probably flat out scared about getting on the road uh, and, you know, just trying to get down to Kuwait and get home. So anyway, uh, we were we were up at the intercrit at the uh, division headquarters, picked up our people and, and we just couldn't, I couldn't get them to leave. And as the time's ticking by, I know what we're going to hit in, in Baghdad. It's going to be dark and it's going to be ugly. So I, I was very professional to start with. And it was a, it was, <laughs> I, was, I was a first lieutenant. I was dealing with an 06 uh, 
And I was just, you know, sir, we, we got to go get your people on the truck. Let's, let's do this. And it was, it was just an excuse after an excuse and none of it made sense. It was like, you know, we were waiting on people to get stuff out of the PX and stuff like just, just nonsense. <laughs> so my, the, the final act that I did was I, I, I punched my side mirror of my Humvee and told the colonel to get his fucking people on the truck, which he then did. Uh, I cut, <laughs> I cut my hand up pretty good. I, I didn't realize it right away. Uh, but we got on the road and, and we and we sort of moved out. But that story, I think, relates to emotional intelligence just because it's I mean, you can look at it two ways. You can look at it that I, I used the I, I used my professionalism to a point and then used, you know, what I needed to at the time to get him to move. Or you could look at it like, you know, I didn't have control of my emotional intelligence. It depends which side of the, <laughs> the coin you stand on it. Luckily, I didn't get in trouble. I didn't, you know, I didn't hear anything else about it. So I like to think that I used it in the right way. But um, yeah, it's a funny story. But you know, it's I think it can highlight some of the emotional intelligence stuff that you're going to experience, and just you never know what you're going to what's going to pop up in arms. I kept thinking about what you were talking about that and the five things that you mentioned. And, and fortunately, I'm a product of the Air Force system when it comes to senior leadership schools, and as opposed to the Army Sergeant's Major Academy, which which teaches you really the type of authoritarian leadership, I think, that, that, that we bring guys up with. Because the Army views, you know, successful leaders as those who can get the task accomplished. Not It has nothing to do with, with how you treat people. It really doesn't. Uh, if, you, yeah. if you're successful at accomplishing a task and it doesn't matter, matter whether that's a, a combat mission or something, you know, back at home when you're not in combat, it, you're successful. You, 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 you did. You completed the mission. You got the job done. The Air Force looks at it a couple of different ways, and and what they would call that is a is a task manager, right? A task manager is somebody who can who can focus on one task and accomplish that task no matter what he has to do to get that accomplished. Uh, you can step on people. You can piss people off. Uh, you can call them names. You can do whatever you want to motivate people. Sometimes negative uh, influence is also motivational to to make people move sure. forward. Um, but what they really emphasize is a style of, of management called social management, and which goes to the fifth point, which, you know, social interaction is, is your fifth point of emotional intelligence, right? So, but that social management aspect is, is they really, really try to get people to influence others who want to see either the individual that they're working for succeed or the organization as a whole. So no matter how you do that, and I think as Green Berets, we are naturally, uh, you know, kind of drawn towards social leadership or social management. We have yeah. the ability to relationships, to find common ground and, and to, to use that type of relationship to make people want to see us and the organization succeed. So yeah. I, I just think that my own leadership style is is much more on a social nature uh, than than some of what you would see in, in most people in the military that, that hey, I've got to get this done at all costs. Yeah, I think yeah, that- I agree with, agree with you 100%. Yeah, I think both of you guys, I mean, in Special Forces, having dealt with both the psychology and sociology of human behavior and understanding how it works, and I mean, you have to be effective in that in order to move it along. You know, if if you can't get the buy-in from the indigenous forces that you're working with to try to help them understand the situation and to train them, and then you're not going to be successful. The mission's not going to be successful that you're you're actually going for. And it's much like the same type of thing when you think about it and trying to build teams, get them to be effective, and get them to accomplish a mission. And, and if you don't understand the psychology behind that and what goes into it and the social interactions and stuff that 
that must be the dynamic sometimes that we refer to, you know, that goes on in, in building teams where you're not going to be successful either. Well, and Robert, something I've found is that, you know, you, you can, as a social manager or as a social leader, you can, you can cross that line. Uh, and, and so you've built the relationships, you put the hard work in, you're developing, you're mentoring, right? That's what this podcast is about. And you, if you, if you adopt that as a style of leadership, then there's going to come a time when you're under stress, something is, is too important to take the time to sit and discuss it. And you've got to just dig into people to get it done. People understand that. Uh, generally yeah. people don't get butt hurt. If you get a little loud and, and say, I can't talk about it right now, get out and do what I asked you to do. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll execute, right? They, they do that. Um, and I used to have kind of a, uh, or we try to, to have maybe a, a relaxed way in, in conveying that message so that it wasn't as harsh. Um, but if you are a task manager, if you are the authoritarian leader and that's the only way you know how to lead, you can never make that transition. Um, it, it's it's much more difficult to build relationships if you're an asshole. So if, if that's the way you approach things every day, uh, yeah. then you're not going to get the buy-in that you just talked about from the people that are working for you. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, as I said before, when uh, coming onto a team as a as an officer, when you you know that team's been together for a bit, it's it's intimidating. You know, you're gonna you walk in that door and you know these guys are all very experienced. Um, and my leadership style has always been to rely on my NCOs because, I, I mean, that's probably the best piece of advice you can give any young officer is rely on your NCOs. So I, I was fortunate enough to, to hear that advice many times and take it, uh, probably from guys like Mike through the Q course because uh, you, you do hear that. But, yeah, I think just being able to walk onto a team and know that all of those guys – are, are we're all there for the, the same thing to whatever mission we need to accomplish uh, and then just taking their advice when when then you know we were deployed and there was times where it was like we can't debate this anymore guys i'm making a decision then they, they do they follow that and they they understand that so um absolutely agree with mike casey i'd add one thing to that and i i i believe new guys coming into any situation should trust the people underneath them uh but i i think that uh I think that what goes along with that is you got to hold them accountable. Uh, oh, yeah. you, you've got to you've got to see what product you're you're getting out of them, and and you've got to set expectations. And even though you're the junior guy as a leader, uh, and and I got to tell you, it's it's very similar coming in as a brand new team sergeant. I mean, you talk yeah. about coming in as a team leader, and, and a team sergeant's got all this experience, uh, but generally he's got experience in in one of those you know five uh, functional areas that we work out of. Um, and I'll tell you just my own experience. I remember when I came out on the eight list, I was working out at Camp McCall at the time. I put this big stack of books on my table. And anytime I had any, any free time that I wasn't, uh, working with the students, I was digging into each of the MOS's, you know, different, different, um, manuals that they had to know. And, uh, the guy that I was working for at the time came up and he was Mike, what are you doing? And uh, I'm like, man, I got I to gotta know what the 18 Bravo knows. I got to know what the 18 Echo knows. And I was a pretty good 18 Charlie, you know, and, I, and, and an average probably intelligence guy. But uh, as, a, as an engineer, I was pretty confident. Uh, but as far as the other ones goes, aside from basic cross training, uh, I didn't know the, the depth of knowledge of each of the remotes that I felt I should. And this, kid, this, this, uh, this guy sent me down a, a real, really successful team starting out of fifth group that, was, that I was working for. And he said, you've got. Uh, you know, you've got an, an 18 Bravo that's going to know everything there is to know about your, your weapon systems. You don't need to know that. All you need to know is, you know, to trust him. And then when he's trying to pull the wool over your eyes, 
start going around and figuring stuff out. So you got to hold him accountable. Right. And he told me about each one of those MOSs. And um, man, I put those books away that day and I never, never looked back. And uh, and I set really, really, I think, high but, and firm expectations for each of those guys on my team. And, um, and, and, and I had a lot of, you know, leeway for when they struggle because it's developmental for a, for a guy to experience that kind of leadership because most of us don't do it. Most of us, honestly, you know, I mean, I've, I've served at several levels leadership within special forces. A lot of new team sergeants come in and they let their guys run and they have too much trust and not enough accountability. There's got to be a balance, man. You've got to have trust that they know their job. Um, but you know as well as I do, an, a staff sergeant 18 Bravo coming out of the Q course does not know as much as I do. Right. Doesn't know right. as much as you do as an infantry platoon leader. He doesn't. Right. You know, you yeah. You expect him to because we tell you in the Q course that he's the tactical, you know, uh, master on, on the ODA, and that's not true. That guy cannot go into right. a brigade commander and advise him. Uh, right. After he's got eight or ten years on a team, of course he can't. Uh, so yeah. you've got to, you've got to, you've got to realize what real, realistic expectations are. Obviously, you can't do it yourself, but you got to hold those guys accountable. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, coming onto a team, there's a there's that period where you're sort of just observing, getting to know the guys, kind of feeling everything out. But then you're right, like you, it's not just sitting back and trusting everything. You you are holding the guys accountable, and you're also, you know, you as you said, you know, you have you are the expert in mission planning and everything else. Obviously, in conjunction with, you know, your senior guys and your team, but. Yeah, you gotta you gotta know your job as well. So, yeah. I used to tell people you need to give me enough information, Mike. Going back to your story, to be dangerous, and what I meant by that was enough to keep them accountable, as you're mentioning, but at the same token, to be able to protect them from the leadership up above. So when stuff came down, and we talked about this in the last podcast about this very subject about a new leader coming into a team. But you almost need to know enough from each individual subordinate of what they're doing and the, and the what they're their job is and stuff so that you can protect them and provide that buffer. But also in the emotional intelligence side of it, it's becoming enough aware about who they are, you know, what motivates them, what drives their behavior and what are the things that they hold dear as far as a uh, passion or purpose and stuff as well. Because I think if you understand those things, then again, it goes back to really about teamwork and building teams and making them effective a guy, a psychology professor, by the way, UNH, I read an article here about the Harvard Business Review, within the Harvard Business Review, from a guy named John D. Mayer. Not not Mayer is in the, the guitarist. The singer? No. John Mayer? So, <laughs> but what he said was his research, along with other recent studies, clearly shows that emotional intelligence is the indispensable component of leadership. Without it, a person can have the best training in the world, an incisive analytical mind, and an endless supply of smart ideas but he still won't make a great leader. And I I thought that was a yeah. great way of really summarizing what we're talking about here too, because you can be the best at what you do, but unless you reach that emotional intelligence level, and especially when you get out into the private sector, because then you can't always use the authoritarian you know position. Yeah. I mean, Mike, you're now filling a role of a, even a coach and a teacher. As a coach, you could probably use the authoritarian type of uh, style of leadership on occasion, you know, to drive those young men and to, you know, really build character in the whole bit. But then you walk into the classroom and you're dealing with a, a class and you're teaching them in history. It it's doesn't exactly apply. the same, Robert. You've yeah. got to build relationships so that I think that when you snap like that and, and, and the kids realize that, hey, he means business, um, I, you know, it, you're not hurting feelings, right? Right. It's it's just a different it's, it's it's something about accomplishing a job and it has nothing to do with being personal, um, and and I, I think a lot of it too, particularly in coaching, you know, you're critiquing the performance, not the person. 
So, so when they, when they hear that critique, it's, it's not, you know, Hey, you mess this up or, or, you know, Hey, you didn't step the right way or you didn't, you didn't, you know, you didn't follow the fundamentals that we've been working on all week. And, and I, and I think kids get that just like adults get that. Right. On a, on an SF team in particular, where you can get away with telling a guy to pull his head out of his ass, you got guys on there that are all motivated by, by different things. Some guys are just, they just love being in the army and that's what they want to do forever and ever. They just love being on a team, you know? Um, but you also have guys that are motivated by other things, you know, younger guys that are growing their families and everything else. So you, taking, I think the army is doing a better job of this. I think the military is doing a better job. I think that comes with being at war for the last 15 years of you, you have to be aware of that person uh, as, as a whole, you know, holistically you can't just be the army guy. You have to know his family. You have to know what's going on inside is this, you just got on the team, is this his fourth rotation that you guys are about to go on? You know, so taking care of the guy, taking care of the family so they can be a soldier, I think is super important. And just understanding that that it's not a cookie cutter approach for each person, you know. I, uh, I've noticed that, you know, obviously as I, as I working in the civilian side, still with former military guys, but, you know, guys from all over the world now, it doesn't always work that American in-your-face approach isn't necessarily the way Australians or Brits or somebody else operate. So kind of learning the, those, the ins and outs of those different uh, cultures um, definitely will help you be a better leader. Well, when you talked about the motivation part of it, and you mentioned especially the passion for work that goes beyond money and status, I think that's an important factor that most leaders overlook. They, they don't realize that money doesn't drive everything. Reaching a rank or in, you know, something like that will only do so much you know, you've got to find ways to motivate individuals outside of that as a leader. And again, some of yeah. that comes into understanding the social dynamics that come into play and the psychology, human psychology behind it of how people interact and what motivates them. And each person is going to be different, like you described. And especially if they come from different, very different backgrounds. And even in the military, you're going to find individuals that came from different parts of America and their whole dynamic of how they grew up and the culture in which they were raised in is going to be very different. So if you try to yeah. cookie cutter that or peanut butter it as we described, that's not going to work either. I think something yeah. you said that, that piqued my interest is one, um, this cookie cutter keeps coming back up. And, yeah. and then Robert, you said that from your article in Harvard Business Review that, you know, some leaders will never reach that, that level of emotional intelligence that makes them great leaders. Something I've always disagreed with at the Army is that leaders can be taught. Yeah, um, I agree. There, there, there used to be one of those old promotion board questions, like you know, can right. you can you teach leadership, or, or is leadership a kind of like a, a innate genetic type of uh, type of thing? And I don't remember how the question used to be framed. Yeah, I remember that. Um, but I always kind of thought, you know, I was a captain of my high school football team. I, I've always kind of gravitated to to positions like that. I'm very social. People tend to to gather around I me. Mean, I think that good leaders do have those traits. And that you may be able to teach some different principles of leadership, which is what we try to do in in the uh, both the NCO and the officer education system. Uh, but even through professional military education, you, you can't teach great leadership. You can only teach some skills to get you through, you know, maybe some problem solving or, or you can teach combat skills and combat leadership skills. They get you through mission planning. It'll help you put some some control measures in place to make you successful. But you can never teach people to want to follow you. 
Uh, and that, that comes back yeah. to, I mean, the, these, these traits in emotional leadership where you've got to have self-reflection, you got to know your limitations, uh, and you have to be able to ask for help when you need help. Uh, and, and at least those of us on an A team generally, um, have those, those types of guys around us to where there's no one single guy uh, on an A team. That's the linchpin. I, I've never seen it. I mean, you see really, really high performers, uh, but you never see that, that one guy that's the linchpin that if you pull him out, the entire mission is going to fail. Uh, most of those guys will rise to the occasion because they're they're pretty good dudes. So I think yeah. that you know, well, while you can teach some leadership traits to 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 give people the skills who have none, um, most people who really aspire to high levels of leadership and people want to follow them, they they just have these relationship skills or or the emotional intelligence qualities that we've been talking about that allow them to be successful. You know, when you started talking about uh, some of the things you just mentioned, it brought up a story about walking or watching individuals, especially in the combat arms area, where at times when you're a young, not even an NCO, but you're a private or a specialist or something of that nature, you're watching and observing the different styles of leadership. And sometimes it's the alpha male who ends up being the individual that's termed the leader. But then you have some of these people that are just more of the, you know, what you guys like to refer to, the quiet professional, the individual that goes about their way of doing things might be very silent, but you can just see the leadership coming out of them. And they may be the, the team leader as, as opposed to the platoon sergeant, but they're the guy that you end up going to truly as the leader and walking and, and watching and everything else, because that's who you want to emulate. But the guy in charge is the E7 gets the authority because he has the rank behind it, but he acts more like the mm -hmm. alpha male. So, you know, you end up watching and observing these types of things. And the guys that the guy typically, and hopefully it's still the same way in the military, that's more of the team leader I described that uh, is more quiet and, and leads in a different manner, tends to be the, uh, the types of leaders people gravitate towards and ends up staying longer in their military career and being more successful as well on the outside. I, I think every organization has informal leaders like you just yeah. described. And, and I honestly, and it's a lot of fun to be that guy. I, I you know, I, I, I try to be that guy all the time. Uh, if, and I haven't been in charge of anything for what, two and a half, three years. Uh, so, so it's, it's fun to be the informal leader with, with no real consequences over your head, right. honestly. Um, but what are you trying to do? A guy like me who I, I consider myself a social leader, um, I'm trying to help the guy who is the boss be successful. And, and there's a different style that I may have about that, right. but I can come in behind somebody who is not as kind of socially adept as me. And, and I can kind of smooth those men fences. Right. Right. And, and, and I think that you, 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 again, this is all about, you know, finding common ground and building relationships and mentoring people. Uh, and in my case now, it's, it's a lot to do with kids, but you can see kids get upset over some of the smallest things. And sometimes all it takes is that, that, you know, that calm demeanor to come in and, and, and talk to me. And I'm a little bit older than most of the people that I'm working with. Yeah. I so I think, I think that I, I've got a little bit of maturity and I've made a lot of mistakes in my past. So when I see something like that happen, it's easy, it's easy to come over and just pat a kid on the back and, and, and build them back up. And, and I think that, man, it's a lot of fun to be that informal leader that, right. you know, people, people don't appreciate it as much. I think, um, as they should. A lot of people get they get intimidated by 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 guys who who fill that role, and they do it in the army. I mean, I'm, that's really what I'm talking about. Guys in the army, they 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 tend to see that as threatening to leadership uh, and, and legitimate leadership positions. But if it's used correctly, it's not. 
Yeah. Well, you think about you're influencing guys that are 15 to 18 years old. There's not much difference in maturity level between that and 18 to 21. I mean, no, we don't, not at all. Yeah, they really don't grow that quickly. <laughs> a, lot my, a lot of my kids, a lot of my kids are heading right into the army. A bunch of them are in the regiment. So I, I think that uh, you know, it's the same. They're a little bit less mature than a 19 or 20 year old. Right. But, but um, you know, and that they 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 get away from that when they get away from mom and dad. They'll they'll grow up a little bit more. But I think the population is very similar. Yeah, I think uh, on the informal leader side, it, for for me in particular, like, I, I didn't uh, probably recognize how how great of a warrant officer I had on my team. I lo- I, I love the guy as as a person, but he was he was a great leader, you know, and and he he was that technical expert, and he was great with the guys. And I think looking back, I probably looked at that as as very threatening, very intimidating. And at the time, I don't know that. I don't think I recognized it at the time. I think I was just kind of like, what, "What the hell is this guy doing? Like, what? Like, let me do my shit, you know?" Like, <laughs> and I probably, I probably should have relied on him a lot more um, because, you know, similar to what Mike said, if you have that informal leader that's willing to, to, you know, put himself out there and help help who's ever actually in that authority uh, in the authority, you know, position, then. Mm-hmm. You have a you have a really great asset there. So well, see, and that's a good point. Leaders. Some people see them as a threat that that second person. And if you would have embraced them, you can really see a lot. And, and I've even seen op, uh, opportunities where people do the good guy, uh, good cop, bad cop kind of scenario. All right, you know, hey Mike, you know, you got a little cooler demeanor and everything else. I like to get out there. I got the safe personality. How about we team up? You know, I'll be tough on the guys. You smooth it over. Together, we'll build the team. You know. I, I don't know that that always works, but there I guess there are situations where well, that does come. I, I think it's great, Robert, when you recognize that you've got a guy like that, and right. I've had several of them. And I, I, I kind of talked about it in my own experience from trying to be an informal leader now, but I, I think that uh, you know, really that comes from me having a few guys that I could really lean on. Um, and, and, I mean, when you start leading larger organizations, you have to have those guys that you can really lean on. And, and Informal leaders uh, who are members of the population are fantastic when one when they're willing and you, you've built that relationship with them uh, But two when they're you know, you know, they're competent So and what I try to do now because I've seen how well I, I've used them in the past is man I let those guys know I, I mean there's there's got to be something that, that a guy that's Under a lot of pressure in an organization is dealing with that. He doesn't need to be dealing with right now. Hey, give that to me let me take that for you. Trust me. I'll come back and I'll, I'll, I'll let you know how it's going. We'll do some type of in-progress stuff. But, you know, ultimately, if I can take one of those stressful things away from an organizational leader um, so that he or she can focus on something that is more pressing right now, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that's, that's the way informal leaders should work. Well, not, these people not always have a title as well. So sometimes they're just a person of influence that we're describing. So you may have an individual that's even an E3, E4, or, or young E5 or something that's carrying that type of influence within your organization if you're in the military. And on the outside, the very same way, you may not have a person that's in a manager title or a you know director or some senior level position that's a person of influence it might just be a member of your team but you have to recognize have the wherewithal to recognize those people and like we're talking about use them to your advantage and embrace that aspect don't try to push it away because if nothing else if you start doing that you're going to lose the rest of the team because they see that person as a person of influence and if you start going against it it's never going to work yeah that's great i mean that's great advice like i don't have anything to add to that but that's great advice 100 percent so we talked a little bit about the, the self-awareness, self-regulation, 
motivation, having empathy for others, and some of the social skills that come into um, the whole aspect of what's now being termed as this emotional intelligence or emotional IQ, emotional leadership, all these key little buzzwords. But really, it's about some of the basics that we describe. You're going to learn basic leadership when you come within the military or as you're coming within the private sector. But if you really want to be a great leader, I think it really comes back to what we've just described in emotional intelligence and having that wherewithal. Yeah, you need to understand yourself, right? Like one of the things Bram uh, in particular I I found with working with him is he is probably one of the best people that I've ever worked with in terms of self-reflection. And uh, he's not afraid to, you know, to eat the humble pie and he'll actually come back and apologize to you. You don't run into many people that, that are willing to do that to, to eat their words. So if you, if you can have that level of self-awareness um, about just how, how you act with other people, I think that, that aspect is huge. Um, something I work on, not, not nearly as good as a brand and other people, but it's, I think it's something that you can on a daily basis work on. And it's just as simple as knowing what you're doing. You mess up, go back to the guy. Hey, I messed up. Yeah, this is what I think we should have done. I used to have that conversation. People appreciate that. Yeah, never good to be self righteous. You know, you got to make sure that you uh, eat that humble pie. Yeah, that's right. You know, reflection is something that I haven't, I haven't really focused on until the last couple of years. Uh, if and I and I, I would kind of separate self reflection from. I mean, AAR is a reflection, right? So we try mm-hmm. to AAR everything in the military. What you did right, what you did wrong, how can you make improvements. Uh, but really, that doesn't go on to the personal level that that I think deep reflection really does. And man, my graduate program, they forced me to do that on multiple levels that I was not prepared to do. And and I think only through that kind of and I'm going to sound, you know, all touchy feely now because, you know, here's this <laughs> big old gray haired Green Beret talking about, you know, feelings. But only only through real self-reflection do you find any kind of growth. And, and for me, I, I think that trying to apply previous lessons in leadership and life experience into a completely new type of, you know, population, uh, it, it really required that. So any any of us that that have, you know, gained a lot of experience in the military, it's it's kind of one dimensional. And you, you've got to really have that deep self-reflection to, to learn how to apply it somewhere else. And a lot of guys don't get that. A lot of guys think man, I'm, I'm a badass and I can come right out and I can keep being a badass and I'm going to be successful everywhere uh, that I've been. But I, I've failed a lot in the last couple of years uh, trying to trying to find my, you know, my new path that I'm, I'm going on. So I think self-reflection is, is kind of important to that. And you can probably cut all that out, Robert. Don't put any of that in there because, you know, it makes me something <laughs> I'm going to leave every damn bit of that in there. <laughs> you know, my students listen to these and go, ah, Mr. Pritchard. <laughs> Casey, it was a blast having you on. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, I've now listened to a few of your podcasts. You're definitely in my lineup. I got 400 kilometers of drive each day. (laughs) Plenty plenty of time to catch up. Oh, awesome. Again, Casey, thanks so much for joining us, man. Great talking to you, Casey. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter. Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio.
Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision lenses. Use the code mentors for mil or mentors the number 4 mil at SkeletonOptics.com and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.